Okay, welcome along to another episode of the How I Caught the Wrestling Bug podcast. This is episode 19, and I'm somewhat ashamed to say in a way that uh, it's only the second ever female guest I've had on the show, but uh, Keila Cash joins me. Keila, how's it going? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really well. I, I say I'm ashamed, but there isn't many of you in there, in, in the uh, Fight Game Facebook group, is there? So there's not a lot to choose from, unfortunately. Yeah, well, you know what? Every time you have one of us on, we kind of break that barrier of getting more and more. So hopefully we can increase the numbers of ladies showing up to talk to you about why we caught the wrestling bug. And there's many reasons for that along the way. <laughs> uh, you're, of course, really busy on the on the podcast front because you do shows after every, it's every Raw, every SmackDown and every Dynamite. Yes, and, and NXT. NXT. Yeah. yeah, on the same night, which is... Um, help me, <laughs> but it's going to, I, I guess it's going to get better in early April when NXT moves to Tuesdays. So basically I do recap shows every Tuesday, when Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, but now be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday with those two days being separated very soon, which helps me a lot. So I'm looking forward to the break in between the week now. How did you come up with the name? Is it, is it, is it Wrestle, Wrestle Soaptopia? Yes, it's basically a love letter to the two things I grew up watching when I was a kid, which is professional wrestling and soap operas. And the soap opera love came first, I think around 92 or 93, thanks to my grandmother watching all the soaps all the time. And I just caught that bug first. And then wrestling came along in 1999. I've been a fan of both ever since. And I can safely say I've fallen out of, I've fallen out of love with soaps. In some ways, I'm still wide or die with one show in particular, but wrestling, I've been pretty consistent for the last 20 plus years. And despite all the ups and downs, I still find a way to love it and talk about it every single week. And of course, now you're doing a show for the Fight Game Patreon. Uh, after every pay-per-view, uh, break it down. Uh, of course, you just did one, as we record this, you just did one for uh, Fastlane, which, um, yeah, you were saying that going into Fastlane, you thought this could be the best one ever. Well, there's not been many of them, to be fair, but you thought this could be the best one. And then you, after watching it, you were like, what were we thinking? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Me and Andy, my wonderful co-host, we had very low expectations, but somehow, somewhere, we thought this would be the best fast lane ever based on the card, how wrong we were. We will say there were two matches that stood out, such as Roman Reigns and Daniel Bryan for the Universal Championship and Drew McIntyre versus Sheamus in that no holds barred match. But the rest of the show was basically a lot of filler. So the streak continues a very underwhelming Fastlane pay-per-view. So it's a tradition like no other right before WrestleMania. Hopefully, it's a tradition that will die once we get rid of this <laughs> entire pay-per-view concept sometime next year. I know you've also gone back and reviewed old pay-per-views as well. Is there any plans to do one? Obviously, WrestleMania around the corner. Any plans to go back and review a, a, an old WrestleMania? Yes, the plan is to actually go back to WrestleMania 31 in a couple of weeks to recap the road to that year's Mania featuring the main event of the 2015 Warrior Rumble, Warrior Rumble winner Roman Reigns versus Brock Lesnar for the WWE Championship. A very polarizing match at WrestleMania that year. And I know a lot of fans had low expectations for that Mania. 
but it exceeded every expectation in the best possible way. And it's very funny to me that we see the Roman Reigns six years ago versus who we see right now, who might be cheered overwhelmingly at this at this year's WrestleMania. And I love the irony of that because my God, he was hated six <laughs> years ago, and now he might be the most overheal who's beloved by the people at WrestleMania. And I cannot wait to hear that crowd reaction in a couple of weeks. And there's also parallels to the mania before if Daniel Bryan gets put into the match to make it a freeway, which does look quite possible. I mean, obviously it's not been announced yet, but I'd be very surprised if Daniel Bryan doesn't wind up in that main event. Yeah, I was wondering what WWE was thinking in the last few weeks in terms of Edge being a whiny babyface, so now we see why that Daniel Bryan is going to be in the mix. I think this could be a very memorable triple threat match. I think that all three guys have a lot to offer, and I think it kind of sucks that Edge had this wonderful comeback a year ago, and people were really happy to see him. But unfortunately, the pandemic kind of shut things down, and all of those reactions really since the beginning of the pandemic back in March really kind of stunted that a lot. So it's really hard to gauge how fans will view Edge at WrestleMania. I think he'll still be over. I don't know if they're going to boo him outright, but it's yeah. very touchy when you don't get the natural response from people and then you really won't know until you have them in the building for WrestleMania. So it's going to be a really fun experiment to see who's truly over one year into the pandemic era. Yeah, because, I mean, if you go back a year... I'm sure Drew McIntyre would have got a huge reaction winning the championship from Brock Lesnar. If he wins it from Bobby Lashley, which I expect he probably will, in front of those people, how will they react? Would it be comparable? Obviously, it won't be comparable to how it would have been because it's only going to be, what, 25,000 people. But still, it'll be interesting to see how that gets over with the crowd and how over Drew McIntyre is. I think, I think he's done a phenomenal job, personally, over the past year, but let's see how the fans react to it. Yeah, if this was a year ago, I think the fans would absolutely love to see Drew McIntyre win the WWE Championship. And I had that in my head when he lost initially to Randy Orton back in October. Okay, so maybe Randy Orton's going to be the champion up until before WrestleMania, and, the, and then Drew McIntyre right. can be yeah. back on that run. And now we have Bobby Lashley, who was incredibly over as the WWE champion, racked up wins late last year, was the United States champion. I kind of viewed as if WWE was doing something with Bobby. I did not know exactly what, because right. he was the third most protected guy in all of WWE <laughs> right behind Drew McIntyre and Roman Reigns. And normally that doesn't happen in the WWE hierarchy very often. So when you see him built up as this beast, you actually want to see him retain the championship at WrestleMania and get Brock Lesnar off that farm so they can have that dream match sometime this year as well and maybe put Drew on ice a little while longer. That, for me, this particular matchup, knowing how good it's going to be, is probably going to provide the most divided crowd reaction of the night because I think both guys are over with the people. Right. Who's going to be more over when yeah. the bell sounds for the winner? And I'm definitely conflicted because I, I do want to see Bobby Lashley have a longer reign. I, I don't want to see him be just a transitional champion to get it back onto Drew. So uh, anyway, shall we actually get to the questions? Shall we? Shall we do? <laughs> We're kind of <laughs> going. <laughs> We're going this up on the tangent. Our WrestleMania preview. We can come back to that later, maybe. But um, yes. how did you originally get into wrestling? What was your earliest memory of wrestling? My earliest memory was when I wasn't a fan at all, if you can believe it or not. I was about seven years old. It was June 1994, and I was spending a week at my grandmother's house, and she was a huge wrestling fan dating back 
to the 50s and 60s. So she's old school all the way through. She knows it's a work. She knows it's not real. She's, she's It's not real to her, damn it. But she <laughs> bought into everything she saw on television. So she was a big WCW fan. She had TBS. She didn't have cable. But the benefits of having TBS at the time was watching Clash of Champions, which would air a few times a year. And this particular episode was staying in Ric Flair for the Unified Championship and I was like kind of in and out of the moment I like I saw Ric Flair with the robe I saw beach blonde surfer staying with the face paint I really didn't know who they were at the time but I was really engaged kind of sporadically to what they were doing I remember the Nasty Boys being on that card as well and I remember falling asleep <laughs> midway <laughs> through the show but I always have flashes of that particular moment and I remember my grandmother was also watching maybe a recap show and I saw Jushin Thunder Liger when I was like eight or nine years old but I had no connection to wrestling in terms of sitting down taking the time to watch it until around 1999 when my dad put on an episode of Monday Nitro and I saw Ernest the Cat Miller and for some <laughs> weird strange reason I couldn't stop watching and I've been a fan ever sense so that would have been so the first time you would have seen it would have been like 93 right after flair had left the wbf and obviously come back with the big gold belt at, at the time and obviously sting was the champion so that was the champion versus champion thing that was going on at that time but then 99 was when you sort of really became a fan of it then and, and, and ernest, ernest miller i mean that's the that's the first i've never heard anyone say that ernest miller was the guy that really captured their imagination and got them into wrestling so I can't help that he was on the screen at the time. <laughs> <laughs> My dad flipped the challenge. The first thing I saw, and for some reason, I couldn't stop watching it. Fortunately, Macho Man Randy Savage showed up the next segment. So I was pretty oh, good okay. to go in terms of, okay, here we go. But I just couldn't stop watching, even though at the time I didn't realize I was watching the dirt worst period of WCW towards his deathbed. So little innocent me didn't know that it was real at the time of how bad things were. So Ernest Miller was someone that, that grabbed your attention. Anybody else? Who was the ones that really stood out to you when you first sort of got into it? I remember being kind of smack dab in the middle of David Flair premiering. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the wonderful memories I have. And Tori Wilson and Stacey Keebler and Miss Hancock and that entire... Oh, Daphne and Crowbar and all that. Yes, yeah. I was around that time period, and I will say, like, Daphne, I was really drawn to her because she was different at the time with the crowbar and the pipe. I just really enjoyed the presentation, even though, as an adult, I would probably say all of it sucked. But I was drawn in, and how can you not be drawn in by Ric Flair, no matter how old you are? That guy is one of the best to ever do it. Oh. So engaging as a performer and as a person on the mic that would just grab you with the most stupidest or greatest stuff you can ever see in the business. Is this um, sort of late 99? So is, is this right after Russo had come in? I'm guessing yes. it was sort of around that time, yeah. It was around August 1999. Okay. I think, was, yeah, yeah, I think, the time for me. I think Russo came in in like October of, of 99. So yeah, not too far removed from, from that. Um, so yeah, those are the guys that really stood out to you. Were like, were Ric Flair was, was one. Like you say, it wasn't really... I mean, he he was well past his prime by then, but it's still Ric Flair. I mean, I I know, you know, when Ric Flair came into WWE in like 2002, he was still having great matches up until up until the end. I mean, if you look at the match with Sean, okay, it's not one of Ric Flair's best matches, but it's still a good match. Yeah, he, yeah he, and I remember watching it when they replayed the match last year on SmackDown right before WrestleMania, and you look back at it like that 
was really a good final match for Ric Flair. And at that moment, he should have stopped wrestling. <laughs> that could have been the end of his career right there and we would have been good. No, absolutely. Um, what was the uh, first live show that you, that you attended? My first live show was the Warrior Rumble 2010, and it was the pay-per-view that Edge returned from injury after well over six to eight months. With the Achilles or Peck injury, they both kind of melt together. He was out with an injury for a while, courtesy of Chris Jericho, and he came to Cash Advocacy heading into WrestleMania. And I remember being in Phillips Arena that night, and that was one of my favorite live events because I can proudly say that my hometown sucks in a lot of ways in terms of being really active for live matches courtesy of WWE. And sometimes the company would give you a good reason to not care if you're sitting there. We've gotten better in recent years, but that was my first true live event, watching the Warrior Rumble 2010 and watching Edge's return, which was an added bonus. I love the atmosphere of the Rumble. You cannot like not like the Rumble unless they book it horribly, which they did a few years later. <laughs> but for that moment and that night, it was truly memorable. I was completely out of watching wrestling at this time. So what else was on that card? Oh, gosh, I'll do additional research because I just remember Edge being the guy that I was really looking forward to. So let's do a little deep dive quickly. Well, I've just quickly, I've just quickly looked up the Wikipedia page. So let's, let's, have, let's have a quick look. on the trigger. Uh, so Undertaker Rey Mysterio. Yes. That happened, and that was quite the interesting styles clash of those two guys working together. But you know what? That was a period that Taker still cared about working at a high level during that time period. Uh, Sheamus and Randy Orton had a match for the WWE title, and uh, yeah. Mickey James, Mickey James, and Michelle McCall went twenty seconds for the women's title. Deservedly so, because I hated that Mickey <laughs> James angle for so many reasons. I just despised it. The, the truffle, the jokes, the animated cartoon, that was really a low period for the Divas division in WWE. And it deserved 20 seconds. I mean, it just infuriated me. It really did. The Miz, an MVP for the US title, and uh, Christian against Ezekiel Jackson for the ECW title. Yes, that I have very that. faint ECW memories around that time period because Christian came back and everybody wanted him to be the dude that burnt down Jeff Hardy's house and then he re-debuted in ECW. Just ruined our WrestleMania <laughs> dreams that year. Like, why did you do this? But I actually enjoyed MVP and in The Miz. I thought they had a really interesting feud and Miz probably cut one of his early great promos describing how he was the guy that was in the locker room as a rookie that was put outside for eating chicken right, <laughs> in the yeah. locker room on the floor. He gets kicked out. He gets disrespected. I remember him walking through the curtain cutting this promo on MVP about respect and how he had a scratch and claw to get to where he is today. And I love that passion from The Miz because it came to, from a real place. And I appreciated their match. I think it was good for what it was and MVP was on his way out the door. But I really thought both men for that feud really delivered on the mic. And it kind of delivered a nice match that particular night as well. And of course The Miz would go on to win money in the bank and cash in on Randy Orton and win the title by the end of uh, by the end of 2010 so yes angry Miz girl was born and she spoke for all of us that night <laughs> she certainly did um at any point so we at any point did you lose interest in wrestling so did you ever sort of stop watching altogether yes I can say that I watched Monday Night Raw pretty consistently from 99 to present day there might be periods when I did not have access to cable and I had to watch 
some recap shows um, on the days they would air on Saturday mornings or evenings. And I would always catch the recap show and the prelim matches. But SmackDown in particular, I remember there was a period between probably mid-06 to 08 when I was just out of it. I really wasn't paying attention to, to what was happening because it really wasn't a good show. And I remember outside of the Shield being a great trio, having those wonderful six-man tags on Raw and SmackDown throughout that stretch in 2013, I completely stopped watching SmackDown from 2014 until they went live on USA nearly five years ago when they moved to Tuesdays because WWE treated that show as if it, as if it was truly a B-show that was completely uninteresting. What you saw didn't matter, and I just did not care about SmackDown at the time. I'm a religious watcher now. But at the time, even when I had it on my DVR, I would delete it. I would, I would have no interest in watching SmackDown because it was so stale, so dry. Nothing of importance ever happened on that show because it was just lazy. You would read the results on Tuesday when they taped in advance, and then you wouldn't care to watch Thursday or Friday. That's how over I was with SmackDown for a few years. But if you look at it now, I would say it's night and day between SmackDown and Raw. I think SmackDown's a much better show right now. Absolutely. I think that the pandemic definitely helped SmackDown kind of find its way because when they initially moved to Fox, I thought it was still a bit of a mess for me. But I think that a lot of people like Sasha Banks and Bailey stepped up in a big way mm. during the early days of the empty arena era. And you bring the return of Roman Reigns, who really elevated that show to a completely different level. And he basically saved this show from really falling off a cliff when things were looking very dire before the invention of the Thunderdome. So I think that SmackDown, since really late summer until now, has been firing in all cylinders. Some weeks are better than others, but I just think that this show is by far my favorite show outside of NXT, of course, for WWE and Raw. At least it's a campfire these days and not a dumpster fire or a bonfire <laughs> from a couple of months. Still a very tedious show to watch most weeks. You hit on a great point by saying that Sasha and Bailey uh, did such a great job. I, I, I'm really looking forward to Sasha and Bianca at WrestleMania. I just kind of wish that Bailey was more in the mix right now. Yeah, that's one of the fallbacks of having the championship and not having the championship. Right, because yeah. when you don't have the title, you're not the focal point. And ironically, SmackDown did a good job last year with Sonya Deville and Mandy Rose that they weren't fighting over a championship but they had a heated rivalry, and I wish that Bailey had that too. You have Ruby Wyatt and Liv Morgan there as great workers that she could have worked with to elevate heading into WrestleMania. And I just think at this point, when you have someone as talented as she is, to not have a feud or a path to WrestleMania outside of the battle royal they could be having on nights one or two, I think it's a disservice. I think it's very important, despite not having a championship, to have people lined up post-championship reign. And Bailey, for being one of the MVPs this past year, definitely deserves a bit more heading into WrestleMania season. Definitely, absolutely. Um, so your viewing habits now, so you obviously you watch Raw, SmackDown, NXT, AEW. Anything else? I sparingly watch New Japan when I can. I miss having access TV because I would always be in tune to what was happening with New Japan. And that's how I got exposed to Okada and Tanahashi and Ishii and Omega and Abushi. So many guys I really wrapped my arms around with New Japan. And that was my thing until they got kicked off Access TV. <laughs> and I lost Access TV before they got kicked off Access TV. So it was a very difficult time for me. But it's always important to kind of spread your wings and, find, on the side, and to find 
other styles of wrestling that makes you a bigger fan to appreciate all perspectives of it. And even if I can't watch it all the time, I always read, I always listen to podcasts to get the inside scoop so I'm not completely lost on everything. So I'm in tune to what's going on, even though I miss that instant access to watching it on the regular, besides when I can sparingly watch a New Japan World every now and then. Yeah, and once you manage to navigate the website as well, which can be difficult at times. It is very, <laughs> it's very tough, but once you kind of get around to it, it's easy once you find what you need to find. Absolutely. Uh, we come now to the uh, segment called Rapid Fire Questions, which uh, I really don't know why I called it Rapid Fire, because it never is. But um, your favorite wrestler of all time. So who would be your favorite wrestler if you have to choose just one person? This is a very difficult question, and I hate these questions because it's hard to narrow it down to simply one person. But the person that probably impacted my fandom the most is Shawn Michaels when he returned right. in 2002 because I had no knowledge of Shawn Michaels prior to his return nearly 20 years ago for a second run. But when you see this guy work and the stories he tells and the views he has, it's truly amazing. He's really the template for a lot of guys that are in the industry today. He's really a guy that really set the foundation for what was to come and for WWE to truly appreciate it years down the line. And I just love him as a performer and as a promo to tell these great stories and to put on these classic matches that really formed my fandom as a teenager and as an adult when I was growing up in college as well. The go-to answer for this over and over and over again is Bret Hart. And actually, the last episode I did with uh, Jeremy Finestone, it was the very first time anyone actually said Sean Michaels. So I think you're, I, I may be wrong, but I think you're the second person to say Sean. I'm a little bit surprised by that. I would have thought Sean would be a more popular answer than, than he is because he really is kind of up there with Brett, even maybe more so um, when you think of the impact, like you say, he held on the business. Uh, and I often say on this program that obviously when he came back in 2002, his run from 2002 to when he retired in 2011 is actually much better than the run he had the first time around. I mean, obviously, it's a completely different person for one thing. I mean, if you look at the Shawn Michaels we got when he came back from the back injury in 2002, he was so much of a different person. I mean, it, clearly, his life had been turned around by that point. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, did you see much of him? Obviously, you weren't watching in the 90s when uh, he was, you know, in his first incarnation, if you like, of the Heartbreak Kid. But uh, have you seen enough of his stuff? Have you gone back and watched much of his stuff in the 90s to sort of compare it to what you know of Sean? Yes, definitely thanks to the WWE Network for all of those classic pay-per-views and shows along the way. And I can easily say that Sean definitely had the goods back then, but to see the maturation when he came back in 2002. It's a completely different person because he had, in my opinion, better people to work with during that latter parts of his career that he could run back matches that were really good at the time but became great specifically with The Undertaker and how we can have two completely different views with Chris Jericho and they can have amazing impacts years later in terms of the storytelling and the work they did and you can go back and just weave a narrative that completely makes sense. He and Cena at WrestleMania and having that match in London about right. 14 yeah. years ago is like working for an hour because Randy Orton decided to fuck up his hotel room, <laughs> get suspended, 
and they have to drag out this show with one of the best matches I've seen as a fan on Monday Night Raw in history. So Sean's versatility and his ability to tell these stories on the mic and to tell that story so eloquently in the ring, I think it goes highly underrated. He's really the template for the Daniel Bryans, for the Johnny Gaganos of today, and the Adam Coles as well, to say this guy definitely laid the sticks for where we were today. And I think Sean's work early on is seriously underappreciated for that, but his prime years definitely highlighted how great he was as a performer on every level. He's always been great, but the problem in the 90s was, let's just say he had demons, which held him back. Um, I think that's the, the fairest way to put it. But um, favorite match of all time, what would you go for for that? Ooh, incredibly difficult question once again. So I have to go back to a match from 2015, and I'm always driven by emotion. What will a match make you do in the moment? Will it make you happy? Will it make you sad? Will it make you feel some kind of way in between? Good or bad, how would this match make you feel? And I remember I never watched a TakeOver until TakeOver Brooklyn in its entirety. I just had no time because I was working and it came on a Wednesday. I had no time to watch a TakeOver on a Wednesday. But when you have time to watch TakeOver on a Saturday, it's completely different. You get to watch the entire show start to finish. Really appreciate the experience. The first TakeOver in front of a big crowd at the Barclays Center. And for me, my favorite match I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen a lot of great matches over the years. I can't rank them in particular. But for emotion, it has to be Bailey versus Sasha right. for the NXT Women's Championship. That match changed everything in so many ways. Such a statement for WWE. Very similar to what Britt Baker and Thunder Rosa did for AEW this past Wednesday. Right. You need a statement match a moment that's going to live forever that's going to really lay the foundation for what you will see for years to come and i thought bailey and sasha did that and i ended up crying i showed the match to my mom and she has been a big fan of the ladies ever since then for wwe so every time there's a sasha bailey match i gotta say hey mom i got a match for you to see and she's always in tune so that definitely laid the foundation for that has to be the greatest match for my emotional needs because it just really sent me on this wave of the highs and lows the drama and how well they work together and how great they are now so that is definitely the greatest match for me that made me cry tears of joy on that particular night it's funny you should say all this because i on the last podcast episode i did with jeremy feinstone we talked about the thunder rosa Britt baker match and he asked me he actually asked me the question is that the best women's match you've seen in north america and i said no and i said the match that i would put above it would be sasha and bailey at takeover brooklyn i think that's the best women's match i've ever seen uh and you're absolutely right i mean that was such a pivotal it felt like a really pivotal moment in the sort of women's revolution as it got as it got called and yeah i mean if you look at this year's wrestlemania the two matches I'm most interested in, I would say, are Sasha versus Bianca, and now Asuka versus Rhea Ripley. I, I can't wait to see that one either. And it kind I of know all, they both. sorry, I, I was going to say it all kind of started for me with that match. That was kind of where I started to look at women's wrestling in a whole different light. 
Yeah, and to see where we are right now is pretty amazing. I think that a lot of fans are clamoring for Bianca and Sasha to main event night one of WrestleMania. I think the pushback is the storyline has it been great. I'm like, well, they have two weeks to really sell you on this match being the main event. I think they can do it sometimes. WWE has a funny way towards making a very simple situation incredibly difficult <laughs> from a booking standpoint. But I just think both ladies, in these two weeks, it's crunch time now. It's time for the final hard sell. They can make this a main event match. Now, I know there is a drawback because, yes, being in the main event is wonderful. The key is what time they are the main event. Because I don't care who you are. You can be... Roman Reigns, you can be John Cena, you can be Daniel Bryan or Edge. If you're on at midnight, those fans are not going to care. So if we end WrestleMania before 11 and have those ladies out there by 10:15, that's a victory. That's the main event. Having them out there after 11 or 12 o'clock, yeah, it's nice, but the heat isn't going to be there no matter how over they are or who really is in that spot at the end of the night. I kind of feel that they didn't really need to have the second women's tag title match I, I kind of felt you could have done exactly what you did at fast lane at the chamber you could have had the you know bianca and sasha you know not being able to coexist for whatever reason and losing that way didn't that i don't I, how, where do you stand on that do you think they need to do the match again at, at fast lane? it kind of felt that you could have just done the turn at um the chamber for me, I think it was a situation of WWE working backwards because the night after the Warrior Rumble, Lana and Naomi won a shot for those tag titles. They could have had the match at Elimination Chamber. Right. Yeah. And if you were going to do Sasha and Bianca versus Nia and Shayna, do it at Fastlane one time, one time only, and, perhaps, and have the breakup proceed from there. You could have them win tag team matches for a month on SmackDown, beat Tamina and Natalya, beat the Y-Squad if you need to, I would hate that, but if that's the story that you're telling, then so be it. Make it make sense. You don't jump from having the match, then doing it again for no reason after they were, after they were beaten so decisively at Elimination Chamber. You do the match one time, you set up the breakup at Fastlane, you have two weeks to play with before WrestleMania as the final sale job. I think it's a situation of WWE just working backwards and making things difficult when you control the narrative and you can make it very simple for yourselves or you can book yourself in a corner and make it worse. And unfortunately, you can take some heat off this matchup and then you have fans wondering, how is this main event worthy? Well, I've seen matches at WrestleMania be booked in a sloppy fashion and still justify the main event spot. This can be fixed in two weeks. You need one great promo from both, from both ladies, a brawl when need be, when Bianca finally flips on Sasha, and you can go from there. But it's all about what time they're on at WrestleMania. I love them being in the main event, but I don't want them on there at 1230 and the people inside that stadium are asleep. Well, that's one of the bonuses of having WrestleMania across two nights as well, though, uh, because obviously there is... There has been the case in recent years of having too many matches on the card. And I understand why they do it, because they want to get as many folks a WrestleMania payday as possible. But doing it over two nights, I reckon you could... I mean, if you look at last year with, with no fans, I mean, night one of WrestleMania was, I thought, pretty perfect. I mean, it started at... Um, what would it have been? It would have been like 7 Eastern, and it was kind mm -hmm. of done by about 10 Eastern. And then the next night, I think, was slightly longer. And the Edge and Randy Orton match, I think, dragged on a little bit too long for, for my liking. But still, I mean, it was, it was finished in, in, in pretty good time. So 
I think this year time may not be too much of an issue, but um, obviously there's not many matches announced just yet. I mean, how many matches do you think they'll do on each night? I hope they do between six to seven matches. Right. No more than eight. No more than eight. Yeah, because, I mean, you've had WrestleManias with like 16, 17 matches. And I don't care who you are in the main event. You're going to get a crowd that's completely burned out. Um, so yeah I think doing it over two nights hopefully that'll be the way to go going forward do you think it'll be a, they'll, they'll do it every year like this now I think it's definitely a possibility I know they haven't announced what they're going to do for Dallas and LA in a couple of years they say it's going to be one night I don't believe that for some reason because once you're set in this formula it tends to work that way the only drawback is you're in these big stadiums and you're asking to fill 60 thousand people in one building one night and you're asking maybe you want 80 the next and you're trying to inflate it to a hundred thousand people that's a big ask but we'll see honestly for me two nights is much easier because you have more time to give to the matches you're not rushing and you're not cutting and you're not reducing time for people and i just think it gives the main event the chance to breathe as it should and not have people tired and ready to go home to catch the bus or catch the uber because stuff stops running at a certain hour and if you're running over time you're trapped ask the people in new jersey a couple of years ago that were trapped in the uh, rain they loved yeah. becky but they had to go the best live show that you've ever attended live yeah what, was, what would that be a couple of years ago there was nxt at center stage in atlanta a very intimate show it's basically a run-through for what they would do at takeover in brooklyn that year and I just love how you get to see the big stars like the Street Profits at the time and seeing where they are right now. Bianca Belair teaming up with Karen against Rhea Ripley and or Carol Gonzalez when they were besties. And you see all of the all of the big stars from NXT television. You see them live and in person in this very intimate setting, very laid back, very chill. And you see them getting ready for TakeOver. And it was such a fun atmosphere and a great show to see what they would do ultimately at TakeOver in a few weeks' time. But it was such a fun night of wrestling. It was just such a great experience to really see the stars I really look up to in terms of what they do in the ring up close and personal. And to see that same year, the Street Profits getting called up to the main roster with the with the NXT Tag Team Championships, Bianca Belair being on the ascent and seeing where they are now. It's truly amazing. And to be there a couple of years ago, it's like a different lifetime considering all the things we've been through this past year. But I always really treasure those intimate NXT house shows when they come around just in time for the takeover shows. And the final question I ask everyone is if you could change one thing about the wrestling business what would it be it's kind of like the hardest question to answer in in some respects because you kind of can go at it at, at, in in so many different ways there's so many sort of angles you can go at from for, for this question but uh if you could change one thing what would it be i would say the freedom for open collaboration i think AEW setting the template for that working with numerous promotions and everybody's in a television business. It's a game of money at this point. It's a game of what content you create. And I really want WWE to get into the collaboration business. And you have so many dream matches at your feet from everybody that wants to work together. And despite the mindset at the top of this is a war, this is a feud, you have a lot of people from all over the world that really want to work together. And I would love the idea 
of free agency season of picking up people that you wouldn't normally see in WWE or AEW. You could possibly do these super shows of cross promotion, of cross branding to see where we can go and make these fantasies come to life. I remember what the New Day and the Young Bucks of Kenny Omega did a couple of years ago playing video games. And that's the closest <laughs> they will ever get to having a match in yeah. the ring. They have to do it via Street Fighter or Tekken. But I just hope one day we can kind of put aside all of the wars and the bitterness from the executives, not from the wrestlers, because they have a sincere respect for each other and a love to work together when they can. Because you have all of this... All of this passion, all of this talent, and to have those resources shared would be great. I honestly believe Triple H would be kind of game for it because it's a way to transform the business again and everybody makes money once you put politics to the side. So I would love the aspect of open season, let's collaborate, let's have some free agency with contracts expire, who can make the biggest deal and go from there. And just to give freedom to the performers as well to do what they want to do, when they want to do it, forget that third-party bullshit and let them be who they need to be, have fun while they do it, and let's just make wrestling grow for everybody involved. So do you think it's going to take... If Vince, when Vince is, is, is gone, and if Triple H is the guy to take the reins, do you think it's something that Triple H would, would do then? Could you see him collaborating with other companies? I honestly see it. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but I think the door would definitely be open to do business, to say, what else can we do to shake shit up? And I think that's a way to do it. I think he's more open for those conversations versus Vince, who is so set in one way, and he's not going to budge whatsoever. But Triple H, I think as long as he's in this peripheral of NXT and this need to scout talent, I think he'll be present for those moments. But the fear is, the older he gets, like... You want him still young when he can take over from a creative standpoint. You want that visionary still in place to make sure he can kind of guide us through this next era of WWE that could also be a way to open the door to collaborate with other companies. It's going to be a big ask from everybody else, but I don't see why not that it's a benefit to everybody. Get out of that mindset that you're the only game in town when you're not, and the business is to make money and make as much of it as possible. And what better way to do that than to work with other people along the way? Yeah, I've often wondered if, if wrestling might come you know, full circle in a way and it may go back to how it was before you know, Vince took over WWF from his dad because his dad obviously worked with all the other territories and, and Vince obviously famously came along and, and sort of shut them all down and bought all the, all the territories and he was like, became the only, the only game in town until sort of Ted Turner threw his hat in the ring and WCW was like the one big uh, rival for WBF. I wonder if it's going to sort of go back to those sort of times again where, and we're starting to see a little bit of AEW, obviously with them collaborating with other companies, Impact and, and NWA. It's been, it's been great to see like um, Thunder Rosa, for example, come over to AEW and, and she's been great. It'd be great to see more Impact crossover. Obviously the Good Brothers have come over as well. And, and yeah, I, I think it's uh, the options are endless. I think if the pandemic hadn't hit, we would have definitely seen more of that and, and definitely more crossover with New Japan as well. I know we got uh, Kenta coming over, but I reckon it was a lot more if the uh, pandemic hadn't hit, don't you think? Absolutely. I get the feeling that probably by July, I have this funny date I made a prediction for on one of my podcasts, that in July, since there's no G1 until October due to the Olympics this summer, 
maybe you could have an Ibushi or Okada come by AEW for Fighter Fest 2021 and they can really put this super show together on TNT. It's not out of the realm of possibility once you have people vaccinated and travel restrictions are loosened a bit. But I just think it's an idea that has been floating around for AEW for a long time. It's great to see, but it's all about the execution. Because honestly, I'm not a big fan of having beef with the promotion when you're trying to promote at the same time. I just like the kind of hybrid of what Ring of Honor and New Japan did all those years ago. Then, yeah, we like to work together, but there's no real beef there. We can do a best of the world show, but there's no saying we're better than your show. We're equally bringing the best of our rosters together and giving the people what they want. And I want that mindset to be crystal clear for AEW because you have the resources to do it. I'm glad that Tony Khan is really going there to add these fantasies that we have as fans and bringing them to life via these shows. Well, Tony Khan is just a massive fan himself. You know, he, he he's really, I mean, he, he comes across as, as such, such a big you know wrestling expert and, and historian and he knows he knows the business inside and out you know he's not just somebody that's inherited lots of lots of money and decided to throw it into the wrestling business you know he definitely loves wrestling yeah i mean that comes across uh but um yeah I, i'm just really excited to see where it where it goes from here and with kenny i mean kenny being the belt collector possibly and and, and where where can it stop i mean i, I i'm sure that he'll probably beat Rich Swan for the Impact title. Uh, where do you think that can end? Do you reckon he could see him winning more titles? That's a good question. At this point, he'll be three belts Omega. He will have the AAA belt. He'll have the Impact title and the AEW championship. And the question is, who will he lose to first? It's an incredible <laughs> big ask to say who's going to be the guy to take down Kenny Omega. Well... I've got an idea on that, and I think it's a popular opinion, but I, I reckon it probably should be Adam Page. Absolutely, and I have the date penciled in. If they can pull that trigger at All Out 2021 in Chicago, fans are able to be there. He's the guy to do it. I think that a couple of years ago, he wasn't ready for that moment because when AEW doesn't have television, you don't get to go on the Adam Page journey of how does he qualify as being a champion for AEW. And now we get to know him, and he has a story of the Dark Order. And you have the Young Bucks on the peripheral, like we miss our friend, but he's moved on. And the one thing I love about AEW is they save all these stories to bank for years to come. There will be a payoff. You're not going to get it tomorrow. You're not going to get it next month. But you might get it a year later, and it will make sense at the end of the day. And for Hangman Page to have that moment against Omega in a classic match for the title and to win it and have the Bucks say, fuck you, Kenny. We love Hangman. We miss our friend. Get your shit together. And maybe a year down the line, we can reunite as well, as well and reunite the elite officially. So I love your idea. And the best thing is AEW probably has it written down somewhere as this is what we're going to do at this date, at this place, at this time. And who doesn't want to see... I mean, obviously, they just lost the Impact tag titles. They always want them back again. Who doesn't want to see the Young Bucks as AEW tag champions against the Good Brothers as Impact tag champions versus the Lucha Bros, who I believe are still technically AAA tag champions? Yeah, that would be crazy. That's like a tag team match made in heaven. And those are things I can definitely consider sometime in the summer as well. I just think it's a great way for AEW to bank these storylines for future reference and have the Young Bucks kind of see through the games Don Callis is playing. And the end game is always getting back 
to that friendship and that's the thrill of AEW. You know where it's going, but you don't know when it's going to happen. And I can greatly appreciate that. And all of the great matches they can deliver along the way as well. No, absolutely. I, I think that uh, the Lucha Bros match with the Young Bucks is one of the best tag matches you're ever going to see. And I can't wait to see the Young Bucks versus Ray Phoenix and, and Park. That's going to be a hell of a match for the for the tag titles. Yeah, I hope that Pac heals up soon. I know yeah, he has an anchor yeah. injury right now, but I love Ray Phoenix for so many reasons. Such a talented dude. And the Bucks, for these moments, they're great in-ring generals and great storytellers as well. I'm a stickler for storytelling, and Matt Jackson can sell any body part and have me sold that it's a life or death injury every time he's out there. Obviously, as we record this, uh, Laredo Kid would have made his debut on, on Dynamite. Have you have you seen much of Laredo Kid before? I have, and I was very happy to see him advertised for Dynamite this past week. They're like, wow, that's a big get for them. And I think that match, when it happens, hey guys, taping future past tense, but it's <laughs> going to be great because that dynamic is always incredible when the Lucha Brothers and Laredo Kid are together. Anybody else in AEW that you are particularly keen to see how they progress in the future obviously there's a lot of great young guys i mean the sky's the limit for like mjf i mean he's only just turned 25 and he's already the best heel in the business i would say how much better can he get i mean it's just astonishing you know to me how good he is now some people scare me in aw for all the right reasons and mjf is one of them he is going to get better the older he gets. I love his mantra. I'm going to be in this until I'm 49 years old, damn it. And I'm going to give you the best run in any wrestling promotion ever. And my only critique is I want to see him work more on Dynamite. I can count on one hand the number of Dynamite matches he's right. had yeah. since this show's been on the air. That's my one thing is when I see him against a Jungle Boy or against a Chris Jericho and John Moxley, for example, wow, this guy is really great. I want to see more of it on Dynamite. And I'm glad you're saving him for those moments. But if he's not the champion, then his ass should be wrestling a little bit more regularly to really get him over as an in-ring guy. Because he's really good when he's out there showing out. And he's one of those guys I really like, along with Jungle Boy, Darby Allen. Wardlow is going to look out for in a few years because he reminds me a lot of 05 Batista when he's in this group. Mm, and yeah. you have the MGFs, Triple H, trying to pull the strings, trying to control the situation. So when he breaks through and beats MGF's ass, that's going to be a moment. And I see him being a future champion as well. And of course, Sammy Guevara as well is another guy to throw into that list. I think he's got huge potential as well. And again, he doesn't wrestle very often on Dynamite either. I mean, I, can, I can't think of many sort of singles matches I've seen Sammy Guevara in but I mean he's um he's definitely I mean, he, he must be what 27 yes and, think, and he yeah 27 years old I think Darby's about that age as well maybe maybe slightly older the one thing with Darby though is I do feel he's got to tone some of his stuff down yes that's the only thing I will say because uh, he kind of reminds me a little bit of Jeff Hardy but then having said that Jeff Hardy's still going and he's what in his in his 40s now Yes, 43. And the good thing with Darby, the good thing with Darby is the fact that he is really trained as an amateur wrestler, so he knows how to grapple and be very technical with his work as a nice backup plan. Besides killing himself every five minutes 
during his matches. And I actually prefer that because he's really a good technical wrestler when he really gets down to the nuts and bolts of things. And as you mentioned with Sammy Guevara, he reminds me a lot of Eddie Guerrero in terms of his charisma and his in-ring work. I remember when he was supposed to be the heel in a match a few months ago and he worked as a babyface. It was spectacular. So when he's fully a face, perfectly going up against MJF, they could create magic together. And I love all of these forever feuds, whether it's Sammy and Darby, whether it's MJF or Jungle Boy. These guys are really going to have a history of rivalries and title feuds for years to come. And that's one of the benefits of having guys ready to go in their 20s, which is so refreshing. I loved the promo from Darby last week where he was like, I've defended the TNT title three times and that's just not good enough. I want to be out there every week. I want to be a fighting champion. And uh, I, I would love to see him do something like they did with Cody when Cody has a TNT title where he's defending it pretty much every week. Uh, and you could really get to see what Darby can do because as you say, he has got that that background. I mean, you think of him as, as, as a daredevil, but he really is a great wrestler. Uh, and so yeah i'm looking forward to seeing and another guy another young guy who we haven't mentioned who we probably should as well is ricky starks i love him he's like the walking 90s movie of every dude i've seen in the (laughs) 90s he is so great and i love what he did with darby last year as well i think he needs more opportunities on television to really showcase what he can do because he impressed me a lot against Cody last year. He really broke through with Chaz and Brian Cage during the summer of 2020. So I definitely have him penciled in as another guy to look out for in the future. And I kind of love how a lot of the NWA guys from Ricky Starks to Eddie Kingston coming out of nowhere last year as well, getting these prime spots to shine on television during a pandemic when there was really no work to be found around this time last year. Yeah, Eddie Kingston has been an absolute revelation because everyone's known about him for a long time. But he, he obviously came in, had that match with Cody. He could have been just another guy that had a match with Cody on Dynamite and we never sort of saw him again. But he hit it out of the park. You know, he got the contract. He ended up in a title match with, with Moxley, which again wasn't meant to meant to happen, I don't think, because it was meant to be Lance Archer, of course. And obviously Lance... I think Lance either got COVID or came into contact with someone and they decided to do Eddie and Moxie on Dynamite that one week and it led to a pay-per-view match after that. And yeah, Eddie and, and Mox now as a tag team, uh, I think are great. I, I love their promo last week. They've got such great chemistry together. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's so... I mean, I could talk AEW all day long because I'm so invested in what they're doing right now. It's such a great show to watch. I just... I'm invested in so many guys. I have such affinity for John Silver and Alex Reynolds and the Dark Order. And you cannot catch me saying that a year ago <laughs> at all. Like, you couldn't catch me praising the Dark Order. But the late great Bertie Lee definitely put it out there in terms of just elevating this group as a bunch oh, of guys that you got to get behind. And I see the women's division finally flourishing. I have Anna Jake and Will Soon and Ty Conti, who I saw as Tanaya Conti in NXT. And I always saw, like, this girl's got potential, oh, but then when you yeah. like you see it and like, gosh, you dropped the ball with her, and you see her in AEW, and you see her confidence, she's getting better. And we have to thank Dustin Rhodes and QT Marshall for being miracle workers, really getting the ladies ready to go. And like you see Jay Cargill and Red Velvet, you see Thunder Rosa, Doctor Britt Baker, you see the talent there. And Chris Statlander's not back yet, so they're really are going to feed this division. You have the champion Sheeta, you have Riho back. 
they're starting to put shit together right. in the women's division, and it's making me excited because finally we're getting over that hump. Things are not built overnight, but it's finally looking like a really strong division. And Anna Jay and Ty Conti, you can tell that they have such great chemistry together, and you totally buy them as best friends, whereas you look at like Mandy Rose and Dana Brooke, for example, in WWE, they're like two people that have been thrown together. They don't like each other. They don't want to be together as a team, but they've kind of been put in that position. There's no chemistry. There's nothing whatsoever going on there. I mean, Mandy Rose had so much going for her at one time, and they've really dropped the ball with her big time, I think. Absolutely. I go back to what we mentioned earlier about Mandy and Sonia last year and having a really good feud not over the SmackDown Women's Championship. They had a feud over hating each other. And I honestly believe with Mandy Rose, she is linked so much better with Sonya, whether as an opponent or a partner, and it's night and day. Like, you know when they were together, they were a team, and they would have continued to get better together as a team because they were really good rivals. That was unfortunately squandered due to an idiot doing something last summer, which I won't mention, but it kind of really watered down what they could have done at SummerSlam because I thought in my mind they really could have had a breakthrough match when your head and heart isn't in it. It's disappointing. But for what they gave us, they gave us great promos, they gave us great brawls, and Mandy was invested because that's her best friend. And when you're away from her and you can tell she hates it, her work regresses. And that's unfortunate because she reminds me a lot, ironically, of Jay Cargill. They're very similar in terms of how they work, the strikes they hit, but Mandy, from where she was a year ago, is completely a different person, and it's a disappointment. It definitely is a disappointment, yeah. And back to John Silver for a second. One thing I've said many, many times about John Silver is I can't wait until they have a a full crowd there because the crowd they have at Daly's Place, they go crazy for John Silver, but it doesn't really come across on TV, I don't think, all that well. But when they have a full crowd, I think they're going to absolutely love this guy. I mean, it's a little bit like Orange Cassidy, you know, right before the pandemic hit. They had that match with Park, and they really bought into Orange Cassidy big time. And I think they're going to do exactly the same thing with John Silver. Absolutely. I go back to some of the crowds you mentioned, and even though they're not super loud, I remember when he got eliminated from that battle warrior, those fans hated Matt Hardy desperately. And you can see that he's really over with this small section of fans we do have in the building. And he reminds me a lot of Daniel Bryan because he works a style very similar to him, a great striker, a really good technical wrestler as well, and someone that is just brimming with personality. And I remember being furious with Tony Khan a year or so ago because I'm like, why are we covering the face of John Silver and Alex Reynolds? They have great, expressive faces. There's that story, isn't there, about uh, Tony Khan seeing John Silver on BTE or hearing about him on BTE and sort of acting like he was really upset with 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 john silver and, and pulling him to one side and saying i've seen you on bte why are you not showing any of this on dynamite yeah and i was like confused because said, they have great faces and wonderful personalities and you find out he's a really great worker too like dude you are hiding your hidden gifts and i'm glad he was able to showcase that on bte but to not see it on television for a while 
was definitely confusing. But he's another guy, too, that I definitely think can be a big star and people are back, too, because he's so personable, has a great personality, and is a great worker when he's in there. And I, his magic as Hangman Page, to me, was a great television match late last year. They really showed what he can do when he's given the time to shine. And there was a real moment in that Battle Royal at the last pay-per-view with him and Park. And I'd love to see them two go at it at some point. That would be an amazing match, I think. Yes, that would be the match that John Silver loses his smile. <laughs> <laughs> there would not be much cheesing in that match because I think that him and Pac would beat the hell out of each other in the best possible way. How do you feel about Orange Cassidy for a second? Because obviously he had that great rivalry with, with Jericho. You know, two big wins over Jericho. Hasn't really moved up the ladder as as quickly as people thought he would after the, after those two big matches, uh, do you think that he's someone they still are invested in going forward? I hope so because he's really good when he has an opportunity to shine. And I remember he won the feud with Jericho, but I think the first mistake that AEW made was I think their match at Fighter Fest in July of last year that was their best match. It was, and yeah. that should have been the match he won. Because Jericho would have not lost anything. He could have cheated to win the second match. You go to All Out. Cassidy wins the whole thing and you go from there. But I think the mistake that AEW made was put him in three TNT Championship matches. Once against the late great Brody Lee, he loses. And he loses twice to Cody Rhodes via time running out and via straight pinfall. And I think it's a situation where you don't put him in situations to fail. You put him in situations to succeed. Mm. You don't have to book him in every single title match and have him lose. If he's not going to win, don't book the match. That's my philosophy. And I just think he's doing a whole lot of nothing right now. He's been in this feud with Miro and Kip Sabian for six months. I know. And they had their first taxi match at Revolution a few weeks ago, and it still didn't do anything for me. So I think it's a benefit to have people back to really put Cassidy in a way to really succeed at a better level than where he's at right now. Because when he is not the gimmick, he's a damn good wrestler. A six-month feud that all started over an arcade game. Yes. Think about that for a moment. <laughs> it's going to culminate. Well, it, well, by the time that people hear this, it would have culminated in the match with arcade games all around the ring as well, which doesn't make me any more excited to see it. I've got to be honest. But um, yeah, <laughs> about that Miro for a second, because Miro, I've kind of been underwhelmed, to say the least, by what they've done with Miro so far. Me too. I thought that this guy had the world in his hands once he debuted in AEW, and he was stuck in a gimmick with Kip Sabian and video games. And maybe it's deliberate, but I go back to other big dudes debuting in AEW last year, from the late great Brody Lee to Eddie Kingston to Lance Archer. Those guys were immediately thrust into championship pictures. And Miro comes in, he's in a video game feud with Orange Cassidy, Trent, and Chuck Taylor, and he's in a wedding mess with Kip and Penelope Ford. Like, you're not using this guy to the very best of his potential. Maybe that will change now once he's away from this and you flip Brian Cage as a babyface in recent weeks and Lance Archer's back as being a heel. Now you can have that dynamic of two, of three big guys going at it. But I just thought he could have been in the championship picture a wee bit sooner. And now it's being a little bit overcrowded with Kenny Omega winning all the belts and he's not going to give one up anytime soon. And he's not going to be a part of that picture for the foreseeable future unless you put him in the TNT championship scene. Right, yeah, because you could do a similar thing with Miro and Darby that you did with with Cody and Brody where M Miro could completely annihilate 
Derby and win the TNT title down the, down the road. You could do something like that, maybe. But yeah, I, I think um, obviously he's going to get away from Kip and Penelope. They already sort of planted the seeds for that at the pay-per-view where Penelope got knocked off the apron and Mira did not give a shit about Penelope getting knocked off the apron. So clearly they're going in that direction, uh, which I think is good. Uh, and so, yeah, it's far too early to sort of be saying that, you know, they're not doing a good job with Miro. It's just, I think um, the presentation could have been better, let's put it that way, since he came in. Yes, at least he's wearing vintage Versace. I can give him that. <laughs> that's, well, that's definitely one definite plus. But uh, anyway, we could talk all night. We really could. But uh, I guess we ought to go, really. We ought to cut an end to the podcast somewhere. But uh, I'm going to obviously do more of these shows going forward. And I want to do other podcasts as well. And I, I would love to have you back at some point for whatever I choose to do in the future. I would love to. This was a lot of fun having this kind of conversation, freeform style, as we talk about all things of which we love, which is professional wrestling, which kind of brings us all together at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, obviously, when I have Garrett on the show, I will thank Garrett for basically making this show possible because it wouldn't be possible without Garrett because all the guests I've had so far and will continue to have have all come from the Fight Game podcast Facebook group. And if Garrett had not set it up, this podcast would not exist. So it's a really great forum. You know, I, I, I think everyone in there is great and i love interacting with ever everyone and one of the best things about it is too is that there's disagreements you know, people don't always agree but they do so in a civilized manner you know there's never any uh what's the word i'm looking for there's no sort of bitchiness for lack of a better term going on everyone is kind of accepting of everyone's views and opinions and that's kind of rare to see in a wrestling forum. I don't know if you've ever, ever come across any other wrestling forums in the past, but uh, they're not the best places to be sometimes. Oh, I have, and they're very unpleasant at certain points. And at, at, at that point, it's kind of walk away from the conversation because I just don't like engaging in a very heated debate. But with Fight Game Media, it's a really welcoming place where you can be yourself and have your own thoughts and not be yelled at repeatedly for having a difference of opinion. And it's really refreshing to have those conversations. And Gigi definitely created something great by putting us all together. And it's been an honor to work with him for the past few months doing Break It Down with Danny Marshall, a show that I greatly enjoy breaking down all of the WWE and NXT takeover events that air monthly on the WWE Network via Peacock and interacting with, your, with you guys on the page occasionally as well during the week as we kind of talk about everything that we love and sometimes hate. But at the end of the day, we love this industry that can bring us so much joy and so much pain, sometimes <laughs> at the same time. I'll have to reach out to Andy on Twitter because Andy's not a Facebook guy. Uh, but I would obviously love to get Andy on this uh, on this podcast as well. And uh, continued success to you and Andy for the, the Break It Down podcast. I, I think I said on my tweet the other day that I always listen to Dave and Brian the day after a pay-per-view because it's kind of what I, what I always do is listen to Observer Radio the night after the morning after a pay-per-view but i would normally then go and listen to brian and vinnie but i find myself now choosing you guys over brian and vinnie so and that's the highest compliment i can possibly get for that as well as andy as well like wow we are like 
next level in terms of the priority chain for David. Like, hey, <laughs> we don't suck. We actually do a good job. So thank you for that. No, I love I love um, listening to the show, and I look forward to more, and especially the retro shows as well. So when you do the WrestleMania 31 show, just prior to obviously this year's WrestleMania, I'm really looking forward to hearing that as well. So yeah, continued success, and also, like I say, um, as we said earlier, you know, free podcasts in addition to break it down. You do free podcasts a week. Um, breaking down Raw, SmackDown, and AEW and NXT. So uh, check all those out as well. And uh, what's the best place to get them? Apple Podcasts or Spotify? They're all they're all on there, aren't they? Yes, everywhere you listen to your podcast, you can find Russell Subtopia. You can follow me today. And hey, I'm like AEW year over year. My numbers are up, so that's what matters. And the key demos that matter. <laughs> <laughs> uh keeler it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on and like i say i would love to have you back at some point in the future thank you david for having me it's been a lot of fun